morning, everybody. Well, let me uh, open us up in prayer, and we'll get going. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us, and the day that we can be gathered as your people to worship you. And Lord, we pray that you would minister to us throughout the day. We ask that you would give us particular wisdom and clarity as we talk about the principles of your church this morning. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would cause us to grow in our love uh, for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, I've got some handouts for y'all, so you can just take and pass. And take, I'll just start this way, and y'all can take one and pass them. Uh, what's coming to you is kind of a, a rough sketch of what I'm teaching today, uh, along with a one sheet of paper thing that's about the vows themselves, the vows of membership. So you can look those over and, and be aware of what they are. So um, last week we spent a lot of time talking about what it is our church believes. And we, it would be nice if we could, you know, go through 33 chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith and all 171 paragraphs. But we just can't do that. Um, so what we did is we tried to summarize what... Seven things, I think, um, looking at big principles of what we believe. And this morning we're doing similar things. We're kind of trying to summarize big principles of the stuff that we believe. But we're talking specifically about the church. So the handout is for you to look at later uh, if you have questions. Um, Y'all can just, you know, you can look at me and just enjoy listening. And if you have a question along the way, don't hesitate to ask. So... What exactly is the church? Uh, Jesus clearly considers the church to be massively important. He famously said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that statement can raise a host of questions, but particularly it brings up questions about the church. What is this church that Jesus is building? Well, scripture uses a number of metaphors to talk about the church, to describe it, its nature, we can't look at all of those metaphors, uh, but we can look at three, and that's what I'm going to do. Um, we're going to think briefly about three metaphors of the church. And the first is, the church is, 1 Corinthians 3, God's building. God's building. It's language echoing the Old Testament temple and the church itself being the temple of God. The church is the place where the Holy Spirit dwells amongst the people of God. And the point here is not that the church is a structure, and that's often how people talk about the church. We, we use it and we forgive one another because we're not even thinking, hey, we're going to church today. Well, yes, but the church is not a building. The church is a people. And the church doesn't have to have a building to exist. The church is the people. First uh, Peter 2 will describe the church as we are living stones built upon the, the foundation of Christ in a spiritual house. And this stone is laid in Zion, thinking of the heavenly Zion. So somehow we're connected to Christ even though He's in heaven. And additionally, because the church is God's temple and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the church itself is sacred. It's holy to God or set apart for the Lord as it's indwelt by the Spirit. The Lord himself takes up residence in the church. And if the Lord dwells among his people, anyone who attacks the church will draw the ire of the Lord himself. So the church is a building. 
Second, the church is a bride. This is a metaphor that Paul gives us in Ephesians 5, and he tells husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, what does this tell us the church is? Well, the church is a bride, and it's a bride so precious to Jesus Christ that he came from heaven to seek her, to lay his life down for her, to wash her, and to save her, and then to take her in union to himself. If Jesus did that much for the church, a collection of sinful people, how should that affect the way we view the church? How should it affect the way that we speak of the church? Um, I don't know how it is with other guys, but I imagine this would be a common sentiment. If somebody is insulting my wife, I'm going to be bothered by that, right? Well, how could we insult the church in all kinds of ways? We could speak negatively of the church, but who are we actually attacking as we do that? We're attacking the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus' church is precious to him. And you can't, you know, think about the nature of relationships. I guess it's theoretically possible that you could have a friend that you're really friends with, but you hate his wife. But if you're the wife in the situation, <laughs> do you want your husband to have a friend like that? Uh, a man who likes you but hates your wife? Well, of course not, because you're, you're one, you're attached. Well, it's the same way as we think about this metaphor and its implications with the church. You can't say you love Christ if you hate his bride. You can't say that you're joined to Jesus if you're not interested in the people of God, the church. And of course, there's, we can think about the church as in all of God's people everywhere, but the church is locally expressed as a, a people in a place who are worshiping the Lord. So that's a crucial metaphor. The church is a building, the church is a bride. And then third, the church is a body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Paul will elaborate on this metaphor, talking about Christ as the head, and we are the members. And he'll talk about, because we're all the members of the body of Christ, we're all significant. So Paul will speak of talking about the various members of the body you know, your eye can't say to your hand, I don't need you. How silly would that be? Where could your eye go without your feet? Well, nowhere, right? So the body has a sense of mutual dependence. And that's a metaphor for how the church works. We all need one another in the church. We've all been given various roles in the church. We've been given various gifts in the church. And those gifts are for the common good of the whole. We suffer together, we rejoice together, uh, members of the church are mutually responsible for one another, so we care about each other, we're bound to one another in our attachment to Jesus, and we serve one another. Now, these are big principles of the church, uh, but uh, they have massive implications as we think about this local expression. We are a people who are built together, which means we're attached um, we're not a, you know, a, a brick and mortar building. We're a physical building that's made up of people. We're a bride. We're precious to Christ, and therefore we should be precious to one another. And then we actually function like a body. We have a concern to care for each other. That's the idea. Now, again, these are big principles of the church, but let's think next about this local church, Grace Presbyterian Church. 
And what marks us out as a true church? Is it we gather on Sunday? Is it we, we have a pretty building with a cross on top? Is that what makes you a church? Well, no. Historically, the marks of a church have nothing to do with how many people show up, the size and shape of the building, or anything like that. If you, if you think through history, there have been many times where the church has gathered in homes because they had nowhere else to be, or they were in the open air because they have a building and they were denied buildings. They might meet in the catacombs in Rome, so like they're you know, in the sewers <laughs> underground. They could be in a hole in a wall somewhere. I mean, th- that, it doesn't matter how many people are coming or where you're meeting. Um, that's not what marks the church. So it begs the question, what does mark the church? Well, historically, uh, those in the Reformed faith have talked about three marks of the church. So let me review these quickly. First is the preaching of the word. What marks the church? The word of the Lord is proclaimed. Jesus built his church, and how is he building it? Well, what did Jesus come to do? Um, He came, uh, Luke 4 teaches, proclaiming good news to the poor. He proclaimed liberty to captives. He proclaimed the year of God's favor. What word do you hear repeated there three times? Proclaimed. Jesus preached. Jesus explained what it is he was doing, going to the cross and being raised from the dead. Jesus is like a sower. He uses this in a parable. He's like a sower scattering seed. He's scattering the word. He says he came to preach. So he's not just going to go to one place and stay there. He's moving around to proclaim the gospel. And then when he calls the apostles to him, and that word apostle just means sent one, so they're going to be one sent out by Jesus, what did he call them to do? Luke 9, 6, he called them to preach, to go forward and tell people all that Jesus has commanded. And then when we read the Acts of the Apostles, which we just so happen to be studying in the morning sermons right now, what do we find the apostles doing? Peter, John, James, Paul, whoever we look at, yeah, they're preaching. Uh, Acts is a book about one sermon after another sermon after another sermon after another sermon as people are gathered and Christ is proclaimed and sinners are called to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. So what's interesting about that is while various good works are performed by the church, Christ didn't call his apostles to go start an orphanage. He didn't call his apostles to go start a soup kitchen. He didn't call his apostles to go, you know, dig a well for water for a people or go plant trees or go do microeconomics to help people start businesses. Those could be really good works, but that's not the essence of what the church is. The church is proclaiming a message of Christ. That is what Christ called his apostles to do. And then the Apostle Paul, when he writes his very last letter, and he's telling Timothy, it's kind of like his last will and and testament, he tells him, final great command, preach the word. So what is the church to keep doing throughout its existence? Preach, 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 preach. Preach the word. This is our role. The church can only be the church when she's proclaiming the word, the pillar and buttress of the truth. If, if the church abandons the truth of the Scripture or refuses to proclaim the truth of the Scripture, then they're no longer the church. If true preaching of Christ, what He has done, who He is, is not proclaimed, then that is not 
the church. They may call themselves a church, but it doesn't fit with what we see the Bible says the church is. So the preaching of the word is one mark of the church. There are three of these. The second mark of the church is the proper administration of the sacraments. Now, Pastor John is going to talk more about this next week. Um, so I can only get into a little bit here. And anytime you talk about the sacraments, it raises all kinds of questions for folks uh, because there's a lot of confusion about it. When we say the church is marked by the proper administration of the sacraments, what do we mean? We mean that the sacraments are the ones Christ commanded. We don't make up sacraments that Jesus didn't command. And there are several of those that people make up. And two, that they're done in the way that Christ commanded them. There are two sacraments, according to historic Reformed Presbyterian churches. Two sacraments. What are they? Baptism. In the Lord's Supper. And that's it. Baptism in the Lord's Supper. Um, Jesus commanded his apostles in Matthew 28, the famous Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus gives that command for baptism to his apostles, to ministers. He's not telling you know, that you can go wherever you want and baptize anybody you want. Baptize your children in the bathtub. Um, you know, go to somebody's swimming pool and baptize somebody. No, 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 no. I know that's done. People do stuff like that. But that's not what the scripture is saying. Christ commanded his apostles, the leaders in his church, to teach and baptize. So baptism should be done by a gospel minister because that's the way it's established in the scriptures. Paul also insists in the practice of the Lord's Supper that it be practiced in the way it was delivered. 1 Corinthians 11. You, you hear this almost every time we practice the Lord's Supper here. Paul said, I delivered unto you what I received. And then he begins to explain that Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks to his father, broke it, gave it to his disciples who were there with him and said, Take and eat. This is for you, representing my body. And then after the supper, he took the cup. He prayed. He said something about the cup in connection to his covenant and him spilling his blood and there to drink it. There are two distinct elements. And what are the elements? They're bread and wine, and they represent the body of Christ bearing the weight of our sin and the blood of Christ shed to cleanse us of sin. Those two elements are distinct and to be taken separately. We don't get to introduce new elements. Like we, we have the Lord's Supper on a mountainside with Twinkies and Coke. I'm not making that up. That's stuff people do. Uh, or, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we used vanilla wafers and milk? Well, no, it wouldn't because that's not what Jesus said to do. Jesus established it this way. And the apostle said it's supposed to be practiced in this way. Oh, why don't we just, you know, wouldn't it be fun if we could just hurry things up in the Lord's Supper, take the bread and dip it in the wine and then eat it because you just get to do one thing and it's over? Well, no, because Jesus said he did this and then after supper he took the cup. There was time separating because these are two distinct elements representing two distinct things. So the proper administration of the sacrament is simply following Scripture on how we celebrate it. We don't get to tell Jesus, you know, I think I'm going to do it this way. No, we do it what we do what Jesus said. That's the mark of the church. So preaching of the word, proper administration of sacraments. And then the third mark, the mark that everyone loves to hate, 
church discipline. This is probably the mark that's ignored the most uh, in today's modern context. And let's talk about discipline because it's a word that nobody likes. <laughs> what, what do we mean by church discipline? It means that we place ourselves under the leaders in Christ church who are appointed to keep watch over our souls. Now, there'll be a vow connected to this when we do the vows of membership. And so you'll have more explanation. But the big idea is this. The elders, in a loving, careful, and diligent way, while showing themselves to be examples of Christ, are to give us spiritual direction. Usually when we think of discipline, we think of it only in a negative fashion, that it's corrective, that it's somebody, you know, ready to whack you for something. But discipline is also positive. Discipline has to do with being trained in godly living. If you think about an athlete, he has to discipline himself, right? Train his body to do what he's called to do. Well, that's true spiritually. Every time you're taught the word, every time you're being instructed, whether it be in a small group or a large group, you're being disciplined. Right now, you're undergoing church discipline. Uh, you're being instructed in the things of the Lord. And then, of course, you're going to be held accountable. If you say you're a Christian and you live like you're a pagan, are we just to let that go? Hey, you, but you said you're a follower of Christ. How can you live in this way? How can you think that you walk with Jesus when you're walking with the world and you're doing it persistently. Uh, it would be horrible. Again, try to think of as a parent. You're, you're called to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and your, your child is moving towards the street, and you just say nothing. And then, boom, your child is gone. Is that a proper exercise of your authority? Well, absolutely not. Uh, you, you care to try to rescue people from endangering themselves. Well, church discipline is like that. Uh, church discipline can be difficult uh, if you are pursuing a course of sin and you just want to do it anyway and you don't care what anybody says. Well, then that will require action. It may say, well, you're saying you're a Christian, but everything about your conduct says you're not. And we're going to actually declare that you're, you're not a believer. You're outside of fellowship. You, you're not matching what Christ calls his people to be. Uh, we never do that frivolously. That, that's a really big deal. But... We're holding each other accountable. That's the notion of church discipline. So we don't watch you sin and take Christ's name in vain and then turn a blind eye as though Christ's pure church doesn't matter to us. It does. So these are three big principles. We could spend you know, our whole time talking about each one of those things, and it may raise questions, but I've got to hasten on. Okay, so we've talked about the church is characterized by three things or three metaphors, a building, a bride, a body, Three marks of the church, preaching, the proper administration of sacraments, and church discipline. Now let's talk a little bit more about being Presbyterian. It's a great name, is it? Presbyterian? Can you even spell it? <laughs> um, what does that mean? The word Presbyterian comes from a Greek word, presbyteros. It's kind of easy to hear the connection, which simply means elder. But Eldarian church just doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? We're Grace Eldarian Church. Um, that's, that's what it means. Uh, what is an elder? Uh, Christ, as the head of this church, has called and gifted 
elders or overseers to take care of his church. In Acts 20, Paul says to the elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Again, how precious is the church to Jesus? Well, he died for her. He spilt his blood for her. So elders take care of the bride of Christ, care for her, shepherd her. Uh, That's the notion of being an elder. Now, there are two words in the Bible used for, for elder. There's elder and there's overseer. It's the same office. The elder is the title. Overseer is the function. And these two words are used synonymously. What does an elder do? He oversees. He shepherds. He cares for. And then there's another office in the church, the deacon. Uh, Deacons serve the church by attending to various needs in the church, from building needs to budgetary issues to caring for the weak and needy in the church. The diaconal office was established in Acts chapter 6 when the apostles were preaching, the church was growing, and widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And the apostle said, well, it isn't right for us to stop preaching the word and to serve tables. So what we need to do is we need to elect, in this case, seven men to be deacons in order to take care of the widows. And that was the establishment of the office of deacon. So deacons are concerned with the physical well-being of God's people. Elders are concerned with the spiritual well-being of God's people. And that's kind of how these two offices work together. Both of them, deacons and elders, are elected by the people. Uh, You don't get them appointed over you. You, you, They're elected. There's qualifications that the Bible lays out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Elders and deacons are not high-ranking Christians, Christians on another level. They're simply godly people who have been called and gifted to fulfill those offices. So they're not higher up than you as if they're a higher life form and you're just, you know, mere peons. Um, They're models of Christ-likeness, so they should exemplify what it means to follow Christ. And then they've been called to serve in a particular way. Um, Amidst the offices of elder or the office of elder, one more thing, and this is, you know, these these are Presbyterian details that may be lost on you, but there's a distinction in the eldership between a teaching elder and a ruling elder. And the, the Bible talks about this in, in 1 Timothy 5.17. Um, the teaching elder is usually, could be teaching elders, are the, those who are recognized most gifted to teach the word. And they do it as a vocation rather than an elder who, like Joe Fowler, he's a lawyer by vocation, but he's an elder in the church, right? Whereas... I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a preacher. And, and my vocation. What yeah. Greg? Greg Bilesma? Yeah, he's an elder. In, he's not an elder in this church, but yeah, he's, he's an elder in the church. And he's called to be a missionary. Yeah, church by pointer. Vocation. Yeah, by vocation. By vocation. So he's devoted to that. Again, lots of distinctives there that we could talk more about that are different from a lot of other churches. But these are patterns we see in Scripture. Now, I introduced you to the word reformed last week, and I want to bring that back up. Um, 
What does it mean to be reformed? That's not in the title of our church, that we're Grace Presbyterian and Reformed Church or Grace Reformed Presbyterian Church. We could, I'm just adding more, more letters to the name, right? Um, but we hold to a particular set of doctrines that are linked to the Protestant Reformation. So to be reformed means that your doctrine flows from the Bible and it's tied to the movement of the Reformation in the 16th century. People like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and, and many others who saw that the, the church at the time had drifted away from the Bible. And they were calling the church back to the Bible. The church at the time, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, said, no, you guys are wrong. Uh, and they wouldn't reform according to Scripture, and therefore... These men recognize, well, you guys are not obeying the Bible at all, so we are going to go this direction. The word Protestant is the word protest. <laughs> I protest that you're not following Scripture, and that's the nature of the word Protestant. To be Reformed is to hold to this Reformation doctrine that we believe the, the doctrines of our church are built on Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. There were these five famous slogans of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. We believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that's a kind of three famous uh, Latin phrases. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Only Christ can save you. You can't do enough good stuff to earn your status before God. Christ alone saves. We're, we hold to that doctrine. And it's all to the glory of God alone. God alone be praised. Now, as I mentioned last week, and even the start of this class, we hold to a particular confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith with its larger and shorter catechisms. And sometimes people get nervous when they hear about a document called a confession and catechisms, and they wonder, the natural simplistic question, why don't you just follow the Bible? Why do you have to have some other document to follow? Well, we do follow the Bible. What does the Bible say about itself? Well, we tell you what we believe the Bible says in our confession. What does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about Christ? What does the Bible say about man? What does it say about sin? What does it say about last things? Well, we explain those things in the confession. Many, many churches say, we believe the Bible. But then you start asking them questions like, well, what do you believe about Jesus? And what do you believe about salvation? And what do you believe about God? And, what do you... and they don't answer your question very well. And they're not very specific. Uh, this confession is a summary of the Bible's teaching on a number of essential doctrines. And it's really helpful. Th think of it like this. Maybe this analogy will, will be beneficial. When you want to get a driver's license, uh, you can go to the courthouse, enter a, a legal library, if there's one there, and study every traffic law on the books in order to prepare yourself to be a driver in the state of Georgia. Is that what you do, though, to get your license? No. Instead, there's a, a small little booklet, which is a summary of the information of the main traffic regulations that you need to know. That's really helpful. I don't have to know everything. I can just get a summary. Well, that's really what our confession and catechisms are. They are summaries. It's not everything, but it's a summary. It's a tool to digest what the Bible is teaching helping you to focus on significant doctrines, maybe secondary doctrines, and hopefully will drive you back to the Bible itself. 
And I didn't bring a confession down here, but I mentioned last week in all of its paragraphs, there's just extensive scriptural citation, recognizing, well, this is where this is in the Bible, and this is where this is in the Bible. It's, it's so clear. Another reason we have a summary of Christian doctrine in our confession and catechisms is just to state clearly what we believe. We're not hiding things. You don't get a secret decoder ring in year five to figure out, oh, this is the next level of stuff. No, it's all there. We give it up front. We're not hiding anything. Read the document. See what we believe. Now, do you have to believe every single jot and tittle of the confession in order to join this particular church? No. There could be subtle details that you don't understand, uh, things that you disagree about. Maybe it's, you know, you're not quite sure about baptizing infants. Um, maybe it's an issue of, yeah, I'm, I'm just really not sure how this whole um, predestination and free will thing work together. Uh, I've still got questions about that. I don't really understand the whole, you know, Jesus returning thing and what that means. And I, don't, I don't get it all. Um, you know, my view, the, the, there's a famous funny, well, it's only funny if you know the terms. Are you, are you premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial? Um, you're like, I don't even know what that is. Well, some people are pan-millennial. It'll all pan out in the end, right? I have no idea how to answer all those questions. Um, maybe stuff that you don't, you don't understand every jot and, and tittle of it. Our concern as elders is, are you a Christian? Do you know your need of a Savior? Is Christ alone the one you seek for salvation? Do you rest on Him alone and not on any works that you have done? Do you want to join with the people of Christ? Do you want to be cared for as the people of Christ? Those are our concerns. But as you sit under the ministry here at this church, you're going to hear teaching that's consistent with our confession. We're not going to teach in a way that's contrary to our own confession. We, we believe that's what the Bible teaches. So that's just a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches. The Bible's a big book. And we're going to teach consistent with what that says. All right. Last thing I'm going to do this morning. Again, I know I've given you, you know, lots of stuff. Three points here, three points there, a few more things. Um, what can you expect to find in a church like Grace Presbyterian Church? Four kind of things I want to close with. Number one, we are not a perfect church. Some people are on a quest for the perfect church, a place where no one disappoints you. If that's you, if that's what you're looking for, you won't find that here because we're not a perfect church. And let me go ahead and tell you the bad news. There is no perfect church this side of heaven. The church is a hospital for sinners. We've got nothing but sinners here. And practically, what does that mean? It means you will find sin among us. Now, we aim to confess our sin to forsake our sin, and to fight against our sin together. But the church is made up of sinners, sinners who are trying to put sin to death and live in a way that honors Christ. But we're not going to be perfect. Second, people at Grace Presbyterian Church are a struggling people. Um, we're struggling with sin. We're struggling with various trials. We aren't trying to put on airs like we're flawless people. We want to be honest about our struggles, 
and then find encouragement with one another to overcome. We recognize, as Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And that tribulation is found in a host of physical, emotional, familial battles. And that means in our church, maybe we're not smiling all the time. Uh, maybe we're, we're real in how we relate. That, you know, the Christian life can be hard, difficult. Didn't Jesus say that way? He said, Narrow is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it, but broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many on that road. The, the way is hard. The way is it's narrow is compressed. It, it, it squeezes us in. So we're not pretending that everything is great when it isn't. We sing about our trials. We pray about our trials. We hear teaching on how to walk through trials. And yet in the midst of that, we have a deep, abiding joy that the Lord Jesus walks with us even in the valley of the shadow of death, that Christ grows us through our trials, and that nothing, no trial, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, again, you're not going to hear what's often called the, the health and wealth prosperity teaching here, because that's just a fraud. It's not reality. Third, we're a church that seeks to worship God according to His Word, thoughtfully, and carefully. Public worship is to be the highlight of the Christian's week, and we plan it carefully that we might worship God in spirit and truth, that is worshiping Him according to His Word. Our worship may seem very formal to some with our creeds and our confession of sin and our highly structured format, but we don't do any of these things thoughtlessly. We believe because Scripture tells us that we worship with reverence and awe. Hebrews 12, 28, let us worship the Lord with reverence and awe. We believe that worship is dictated by God's rules and not our ideas. When Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman in John 4, He says that, um, that we worship in spirit and truth. Uh, we believe that worship must be according to the truth or it's not legitimate worship. Scripture is telling us that the Lord tells us how to worship Him. And if you really reason this out, if you think about it in great detail, if you, if you have any acquaintance with the Bible, how do things go when people try to worship God according to their own understanding? When people try to say, you know, why don't we do that? Uh, it, it never ends well. Every time God's people try to come to Him on the basis of their own ideas, they always get it wrong. Every single time. That shouldn't shock you. We're sinners with bad ideas. <laughs> That's why we need grace. And God is gracious to us to tell us what is pleasing to Him. Do this because this is what I require. How arrogant it would be of us to come before the Lord and to basically tell Him, you should just accept what I give you and be happy that I'm doing it. Well, who's in charge here? You or God? God tells us how to worship Him. And we also believe that serious and joyful are not opposites. Now, I know that seems to be opposite to people today, but serious and joyful are not opposites. Uh, the language of Jesus Himself 
you know, or with regard to Jesus in Psalm 2, uh, worship the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So we're trying to bring together reverence, a reverential notion. We're serious about what we're doing. And yet we have deep and abiding joy that we get to approach the God of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ. Some people call our worship formal. They call this scripturally saturated type of service dead. Well, it will only be dead if you're not worshiping. Uh, it requires things of you, things to prepare. If you don't sing with your heart engaged, then the worship won't seem to be engaging to you. If you sit under the sermon and you're thinking about what's for dinner, um, then the sermon is not going to be beneficial to you. You have to engage. But this is the way that the Lord called us to worship Him. And then in the, in the last place, there will be a diligent effort to provide biblical preaching and teaching that both informs the mind and stirs the feelings. There's a constant striving here to instruct your brain and move your heart. Preaching will get practical. It will challenge your conscience. It will ask you questions about your motives. It will try to bring you to conviction of sin. It will draw you to Jesus Christ and hopefully exhort you to delight in knowing the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean all preaching and teaching will be equally exciting and thrilling. Not all of the Bible is equally exciting and thrilling, is it? I mean, do you get excited about genealogies? You probably don't. Uh, but it's still God's Word, and it still is to be taught. But what you're going to see throughout is there's a constant call to see Christ, to savor Him, to be satisfied with Him. A great deal of pastoring will be done in the preaching. And of course, we hope that the saints will encourage one another in the context of the church as we care for each other. Now, because we're sinners, sometimes we fail to care for one another as we should. We might fail to listen. Uh, we may ignore things. Maybe we don't pay attention as much as we ought and we'll make people feel like they don't matter. That, that's not our intention. But again, to reiterate, we're a hospital for sinners. We are an imperfect body of believers, but what we're trying to do is to strive to love Christ and to love one another. And if that's your desire, well, then this is a place, I think, that you can find to be a refuge for your soul. Now, you may want to know, well, what's required of me that I would join with you all? What procedures do I need to follow? What kind of commitment do I need to make? Well, we're going to unpack that in the next several weeks ahead where we talk about the vows of church membership. And again, I've given to you there, there are five of them, and upcoming classes will explain each one of these vows. As you commit yourself to us, if that will be your intention, it's also our desire to figure out how you're gifted and how you can serve in the context of the church, because all of the believers are to one another each other in the context of the church. Encourage, care, etc. Loving, uh, helping each other. And we want to empower you to do that. So how, how has Christ gifted you? What talents do you have? What are the ways in which you can serve the church? Well, that's a rapid-fire overview of, of the church. It may generate questions. Is there any, any particular question that stirred in your mind that you might want to ask as we, as we close? <clears throat> You'll think of all the questions later. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That's okay. 
Well, uh, let me close this in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we come to praise you that you were pleased to send your Son and our Savior to come and, and rescue us as a bride, wash us and make us clean, that we might be a people to him, a people for your own possession. And Lord, as we come now to the hour of worship, to this great thing that we get to enter into your courts and come with praise and receive from you as you instruct us and feed us with your word. Father, we pray that you would use that word by the power of your spirit to inform our minds and move our hearts and constrain our wills to follow after Christ. Lord, bless us as we desire to live in a way that pleases you and instruct us in the fear of the Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.